Welcome to Mythic, a podcast where we explore meaningful living through the power of myth. I'm your host, Boston Blake. My guest today is award-winning comics artist Phil Jimenez. In addition to his extensive work for DC and Marvel Comics, Phil has also worked as a creator in film and television, traditional print media. He's done design packaging for toy companies. He's created large-scale artworks for public spaces, schools, museums in New York and Chicago. He's lectured at universities, museums, and the Library of Congress on identity and diversity in entertainment. And he mentors young designers at the Cooper Hewitt National Design Museum. Greek mythology has played a major role in Phil's work ever since his first published project, DC's 1991 Wonder Woman crossover event, War of the Gods. Currently, he's working on Wonder Woman Historia, a collaboration with writer Kelly Sue DeConnick, which is scheduled to be released just over a month from now, on November 30th, 2021. And I'll just say, I cannot freaking wait. The art has to be seen to be believed, and you can see some of it. Phil has previews on his social media feeds. On Twitter and Instagram, he's at PhilJimenezNYC. And you might want to check that out as you listen to this episode. I first met Phil in person several years ago at BentCon, a queer comics convention in Burbank, California. I had been a huge fan of his ever since War of the Gods, and meeting him uh, was kind of a fanboy moment. He's a scholar as well as an artist. He's also a deep and fast thinker. Now, usually when I sit down to do an interview, I have prepared questions and a general sense of how I want to steer the conversation. My guest and I, we chit-chat for a few minutes to get comfortable before starting to record. Well, that didn't happen this time. Phil popped up on my Zoom screen and was already sharing how he was struggling to get Dionysus just right, why it mattered for Historia and for the character. I knew right then that what Phil was going to bring was way better than any of my preconceived ideas. So I put down my notes, I pressed record, and we were off to the races. And what came out was a fantastic, deep, and wide-reaching conversation. I'm biased, so I'll let you be the judge. And like I said, I highly recommend checking out Phil's, especially Instagram feed, as part of listening to this episode, because we'll be talking about images that he shared there. Now, hold on tight, because here we go. It's just a figure and he's just reclining. And I've spent probably a day on this figure or more. And it's just... I haven't seen any Dionysus imagery that you've done yet. What are you pulling from? What are the elements that make your, this Historia Dionysus Dionysus? What are the images? Dionysus is interesting in Historia because he is kind of a light... She described him as slinky guy maybe gender non-binary and the image that i am totally stealing from his reference is an old bacchus mosaic it's actually a roman mosaic and he's in this fabulous i'm not, I'm not sure if it's pearls or beads but he's in this sort of skirt and outfit and he's riding a jaguar as dionysus will do 
I'm like, that's it. That's what I'm using. And so I used this idea and then some other stuff that Kelly Sue sent me based on her description. And I have been able to draw him everywhere else. What's interesting is this is his big establishing shot. And so it's the only one that I get in this book. And I think I'm just succumbing to the pressure. I want it to be right. Everything else that I've done in this book, not all the art is perfect, but it all feels right. It feels right for the thing. And so I just want to get this right. It's a moment between Dionysus and Aphrodite. And my take on this current costume, because all the gods have various looks throughout, except for Aphrodite, who remains pretty consistent. I think each god gets two or three costumes and looks and whatever. I did an interview this morning for DC Comics, for Wonder Woman's 80th anniversary. And the hilarious thing was the one thing that I wrote to myself, I was like, oh, this is the thing I want to talk about. And of course we didn't. But I wrote them back. I said, if I could just drop in this one little thing, that would be great. Can I get a scoop? What's the one little thing that you want to talk about for Wonder Woman's 80th anniversary? One of the questions is what makes Wonder Woman an enduring character? And I think an interesting and enduring quality of that character is it asks of its creators and its audience some really tough questions about sex and gender and feminism and war and how we all feel about these things. And the big question I think it asks is, is war a feminist ideal or idea? And there are different, there are different schools of thought on this. The other thing was, can a single character, and I know the answer, of course, but I think it always begs the question, can a single character embody all of these conflicting ideas or should they? The enduring thing to me about Wonder Woman is that even though it, it's mostly subtextual, I'm not even sure people are cognizant of it. Our primary enemy historically had been Ares or Mars, the god of war. But in mythological terms and in Wonder Woman terms, what Ares represents is essentially what we call today a type of toxic masculinity. And that's, I think, why she endures, because at some level, she is a force of resistance to that. Marston called it. He said comic books' chief problem was their blood-curdling masculinity. That's specifically what he was talking about. It's not that men are bad, and I think he would hold himself up as an Apollonian type guy. Mm -hmm. And this idea that Ares, that, that Mars was a god out of control. This is what happens when that part of masculinity gets out of balance. This is what patriarchy is, is this out of balance-ness. I gave a presentation in San Francisco and a woman asked me this fantastic question. She said, do you think the 2017 Wonder Woman would have been the hit that it was if Hillary Clinton had won that election? It had not occurred to me because we were all ready to celebrate. It was going to be the year of the woman. We were all there for it. And instead it became like the year of resistance and Wonder Woman, you know, stepping up to no man's land became something we needed in a way that we might not have needed if we had gone down a smarter timeline. Oh, I, I don't disagree at all. I've said before that Wonder Woman and certainly Black Panther, and because they hold the same psychological space in their various purviews are zeitgeist movies as much as they are good movies. The moment they hit was the moment they needed to hit, and they ended up representing something larger than a two-hour escapist film. And so I absolutely believe that Wonder Woman's timing mattered. The timing of that film, and certainly the first two-thirds of that movie really mattered. I do think it's really profound that in both the first and second film, 
what so many people responded to and want more of are the Amazon. So clearly that imagery, that idea, the sort of notion of this tribe of powerful women really resonated with almost everyone I know in some way. They just wanted more. And I think that's telling. Yeah, that's what I hear every time. I want more of the first third of the movie. I want two hours of that or a series of that. Trina Robbins is an essay, Wonder Woman, Lesbian or Dyke. And she, she talks about the idea of a woman-only community, that this is the fantasy, a place where women can go, girls can go and just be outside of patriarchal history for just a second. I think men desire that too. I, I would love to see what that's like, although then you get there and you break it because you're the man. It's funny. I joke about that a lot because as I've gotten older, and I think this is certainly a reflection of the politics of the day, shaping ideology, but I'm very into people, groups of people having their spaces. Like, I don't need to be, mm -hmm. right? Like, you have it. I have plenty. Go. During my interview earlier, I kept calling it Paradise Island, which I think matters. I was having a debate with my best friend and he was giving me the, the central argument, the problem with utopia is that utopia is boring or dull. And I said to him, oh, no, no, Paradise Island isn't a utopia because it's perfect. It's a utopia because there are no men. And so the reason it's utopian is that whatever conflict arises, and there could be plenty, ostensibly has no basis in, in patriarchy. Whatever conflict arises is purely, I don't know, matriarchal is the right word, but it is free of the tethers of patriarchy, maleness, man. And that's what makes it utopian, at least for those women. I hadn't thought of it that way. It's their utopia because they get to solve the problems themselves. They right. emerge out of that culture and they are resolved within that culture without this other influence. And they don't have to question the origins of their conflicts. Is that based on some law or are we fighting over a man, quite frankly, or are perceptions being shaped by patriarchal imagery? Like just all that's gone, right? And I'm, I'm reaching for low-hanging fruit, but to imagine a world where all of that is absent. And so all decisions suddenly comes from within. And again, from this culture that they created free of that, that's what makes it utopia. I always love conversations with you. We just dive right into the deep end of the pool. I had lunch this weekend with an old friend. It was the second time in about a month who I hadn't seen for a long time. And we deep dove very quickly. It was not my intent the second time. It was like, let's have fun and gossip and be gay. But we deep dove very, very quickly. And our respective spouses were there. And I kind of apologized to him. He's like, no, no, it's cool. Because I, he made a comment about it. Like, we got there really fast. An interesting thing that's happened over the years, I think it's always historically true, but certainly uh, Trump years in post, I just don't do small talk very well. My tendency is to deep dive quickly. And I have to remember... Not everyone is as interested or capable of that as I am. I resemble that remark. <laughs> <laughs> so this summer I did, it was a certificate in applied mythology through Pacifica Graduate Institute. Wow. And I found 98 people who were as nerdy about mythology as I was. And it was fantastic because every one of us had spent a lot of time thinking about these particular things. And so when it came together, the conversation was rich and deep. We talked about myth in media and myth in comics. Are you familiar with a man named David Odoricio? I might be familiar with the work. He has this incredible lecture on YouTube, and I'll link to it in the show notes, uh, where he breaks down the Phoenix saga 
and how Jean Grey's body goes from being objectified in her first appearance all the way through her being the Phoenix and then the Dark Phoenix and then the problematic resurrection of the Phoenix. Anyway, he was one of the professors for this program. And one of the things that he brought up is that uh, not only are comics, not only can they contain modern myth, but they are repositories of spiritual information. Spiritual information is encoded into them. And that really struck me. In Marston's case, it was Wonder Woman is theosophy, like very deliberately encoded, plus his disc theory and all of that. Grant Morrison put into the invisibles, his chaos magic. I don't know how much of it is conscious. In a lot of cases, it just seems to emerge. A couple of things I want to chime in about because I had a very interesting conversation with Paul Levitz four or five years ago because I'd been asked by Ramsey Fawaz. Do you know Ramsey? No. He wrote uh, this incredible book called The New Mutants, which I highly recommend. Not the comic, but it's a kind of an academic dissertation framed by the New Mutants, the Marvel Comics characters. And it's an intensely loving, rich book, very easy to read. And he breaks down the metaphoric power um, and symbolic power of, of many different groups of comic characters from the Justice League to the X-Men. But his real focus was on the New Mutants because he argued that beyond race and gender diversity, it was the most class-diverse comic in comics at the time. And diverse in that the brownest boy who was Sunspot was the wealthiest, the whitest boy Cannonball was the the poorest, and that that comic, the way it explored issues of gender, race, and class for its time was revolutionary. He asked me to do the entry on Wonder Woman in a new keywords book that just came out. It's all about academic terms. It's for academics. It's concentrated terms because comic scholarship has sort of exploded in the past five or six years. And doing my research on Wonder Woman, I kept finding themes that would run through various iterations of the book, 40s, 60s, 80s, et cetera, repeated themes. In Wonder Woman's case, one of the ones I found really fascinating was the, the notion of another Amazon replacing her for a brief period of time, and then Diana reassuming the mantle because Diana was the best Wonder Woman. And in my conversation with Paul, he's like, you know why that happened all the time? is because so many scripts were repurposed. And he said, if for Superman or Batman, a character or an event was very popular, there was a period of time in the 60s and 70s where they would just repurpose the idea, sometimes even the same script and just rejigger it a little bit and reprint a new version of it. I was taken aback because I thought, oh, these recurring themes, which must have some sort of mythic bent if we're all tapping into them, we're actually a result of corporate decision-making. And so, of course, Artemis, the, the red-headed Amazon that replaced Wonder Woman in the 1990s, replaced Diana's Wonder Woman, was a riff on Orana, who was a riff on this other character in the 60s, late 60s, Diana was replaced for one issue. What's interesting to me is clearly that kind of story resonates with people. But it's reinforced, not through myth, but through corporate decision-making. So it just made me wonder, chicken or the egg? Like, what comes first? Clearly, audiences respond to it. There's something inherent in the story of, for example, someone who wins a title. In this case, Diana wins a title in Wonder Woman. 
that someone else sweeps along and takes that title from her and she has to re-earn it. That seems a fairly universal idea and that seems to resonate with many people and people love it. Even when Hippolyta swept in and became Wonder Woman, people love seeing different iterations of Amazons in that armor because the stories are always different. So it resonates. It has mythic qualities, but it is ultimately is a result of corporate decision-making because it made the money ones. Mm -hmm. One thing that that particular story does, it offers an opportunity to deconstruct what makes Wonder Woman Wonder Woman. Orana, that story, she's going to win the contest at all costs, casualties be damned. Right. And so Wonder Woman is trying to save everybody while Orana is just trying to win. And Artemis just so much more complex and Artemis became a beloved character right? in her own right. One of the things that we got to see through her was something that might've even been missing in Diana with her at that time, the sort of naivete and a bit of a goody two shoes. And then we see Artemis as a kind of take no prisoners. And it's when the two team up that you get this badass femme force. Right. Even when Alan Heinberg did Cersei replacing Wonder Woman for a hot second, Cersei is rescuing trafficked women using whatever means necessary. And I'm like, yeah, go girl. Never mind that she's also genocidal. Right. It gets tossed around a lot that superheroes, DC and Marvel, that they're modern gods, the gods wear spandex. Do you think that's accurate? Oh my God, that's a heavy and deep question. That feels like something I need to open up my books for and open up my research for. I have very strong feelings about the word God and gods, both in the real world and out, but particularly as it pertains to Wonder Woman. I'm, I'm going to narrow the scope just a little bit um, from DC heroes to Wonder Woman, DC too. I think our current and modern conception of godhood, particularly when we're talking about fiction, is based on power, physical power, as opposed to divinity, which does something else. So my understanding of, of God, religion, the divine is these are unknowable things. And that through trying to know them, often through ritual reading of text or meditation and nature, or whatever, we try to understand our own place in the universe. I, I have a weird time calling them gods because I attribute to godhood a certain quality and function. And here's the thing, I might be talking about both sides of my mouth. Many of these characters probably do exactly that at their best. They ask their audience to reflect on their purpose and their function, their reason for being, uh, to contemplate their place in the universe, to think of their responsibility to the community, to think about things like, do we have souls? Are we interconnected through a spiritual force beyond ourselves? I think comic book superheroes can do that. And when they do that, perhaps they can be considered gods. But when I hear the term like superheroes are modern day gods, I really think that what most people are talking about is a highly secular view of what a god is, of what god is. And I think they're talking about it often in terms of power level and maybe a sense of grandeur and scope. I'm not sure how often they're talking about it from an internal contemplative space. I don't think thinking about Superman and Wonder Woman's gods makes readers think about the origins of the universe, their place in it, what purpose their lives serves in it. 
Maybe they do. In the interview I gave earlier, I said that Wonder Woman gave my like purpose. I contemplate the world in a different way because of her, because of the way she has been written. And it's funny, we talk about her, and this is an interesting thing I think about a lot, is can we talk about any character separate from their creators? But Wonder Woman's adventures, that character, the various ways she's been embodied, have driven me personally and spiritually in ways that as I'm talking around this question, maybe are like God in some way. So maybe they are gods. I just think when people say that, I would be curious what they mean by the word God and how divine they think these gods are. You said Wonder Woman or the way she was written gave you a sense of purpose. How did you encounter Wonder Woman? When was, what was your first exposure and how did she give you purpose? So my first exposure to Wonder Woman was actually the Brady Kids cartoon. But then I got hooked on the Super Friends and of course the Linda Carter TV show. I can't honestly say I remember which. I'm pretty sure I saw Super Friends first and then saw the live action show and changed my life forever. And what I mean by purpose was my instant connection to that character primarily is embodied by Linda Carter, but certainly the animated show, whatever it was, whatever spark it gave in my brain, I latched onto it and held onto it to the point where I was a teenager, a gay closeted teenager, and I needed to do something to escape the world I was in. And I decided I was going to write and draw Wonder Woman. At the time, I was just going to draw Wonder Woman because George Press was going to write it forever. So that was my goal, to take over Wonder Woman when, when George Press left. Partly because of what he did with that character, partly because of my inherent love for that character. But when I say she gave me purpose, I, I think a lot of this is in hindsight, but she was a driver my whole life, seeking iterations of that character out. She was a form of entertainment. She was a, a space for fantasy. And then when I started drawing comics and I realized she could potentially be a, a job, there was potential to actually do the work. And whatever that magic was, and I use the word in its broadest sense, it, it was a driver. It, it gave me something to focus on into college and beyond. And even today, get, getting ready for these interviews I've been doing and seeing you, like just reviewing all the work I've done on Wonder Woman research just makes me happy. It's a lot of joy. And it's strange how when I'm 50, watch, so 46 years of Wonder Woman on the brain have done me a world of good. I mean, I would be nowhere without her and the people that worked on her. So your first published work was War of the Gods, like 30 years ago. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> 30 years ago. And then when you took over the Wonder Woman book and you were writing and drawing and you gave us Gods of Gotham, which was restoring Wonder Woman to that mythology, the mythological roots, you brought in a lot of Circe. Classical mythology has played into a lot of your work. How do you relate to mythology yourself as an artist, as a human? It's different now than it was then. It's funny that you bring up Gods of Gotham. As many people know, Gods of Gotham, which I'm glad is as popular as it is, was not the book that I intended. Gods of Gotham was a terrible fight editorially. I had three editors on the first two issues, not because I was fighting with them, but because of just shuffling at DC Comics. And I wanted to do this Batman story. It was very clear in my head because I was very interested in notions of myth and divinity and saw parallels between Batman's family and Wonder Woman's family. And Denny O'Neill, who, God rest his soul, who 
fought me so hard on that book because this was back in the days when Batman only lived in the real world and Batman was an urban legend and he hated the idea that Batman was in the Justice League. He hated anything that sort of cracked what he believed was this veneer of reality, which is exactly what Wonder Woman did. And so he fought me a lot on that project. And one of his big things was that Wonder Woman could be in Gotham City, but no one could ever know she was there. So the story ends up being this strangely contained thing. And I was surprised by this because Danny, a practicing Buddhist, I thought he would totally be into these explorations of what divinity means, what myth means. Batman is an urban myth, but he just hated the idea that Wonder Woman and her family would ever have been in Gotham City. Hated it. My goal with taking on that book was essentially to do what Prez had done, which was restore Diana's mission, which I felt had gotten lost, restore supporting cast or, or consolidate the cast, make sense of all these various versions of Wonder Woman, streamline her mythology, restore Ares as her primary villain. And then again with Cersei, who I love as a villain, confront Diana with someone she actually hates. Get an interesting thing with Diana historically is that she will always find something redeeming in a villain. And I like the idea that there's one person on earth who she just despises. Like if you were to get her in a corner, she would just go ballistic. And to, in my head, that was Cersei. I love that there's this one person that gets under her skin more than anyone else's. And Cersei knows it. My approach to mythology at the time, 20 years younger, was a little literal and Perezian. It was maybe more superhero God than divine God. I wasn't thinking about gods as divine beings. I was thinking about as Perez created beings who were in War of the Gods and Han had replaced one of them. And, you know, like, despite the fact that they were creator beings, it was established in War of the Gods by the Phantom Stranger, no less, that there were still a couple of tiers of godhood above them. So my sense of that my sense of God and the divine and the gods and the mythology itself was still very comic booky, still very Perenzian, because I was paying tribute to my art inspiration and his work. But also at 30, that's what my conception of gods and godhoods and mythology was. It wasn't until I left Wonder Woman and started doing a lot of, I would say, deep dives academically not just in the myths themselves, but in what myths mean and their function culturally. That's, I think, when my conception of what gods were changed. And I absolutely believe it filtered into my approach to the gods in Historia, who I think Kelly Sue DeConnick, the, the, you know, the writer of the book, establishes fairly early on that these are not what the gods look like. These are just some conception. This is for us to understand them, to be able to follow their story, but they can look like anything. They're beings of infinite power, but they had to look like something on the page. And so in some way, like this is what we decided they look like. But what I also did, I think this is going to drive some people insane, is made this decision that these are symbols of gods. They're not the gods themselves. They're visual symbols that we are using to tell a story. So their garments are much more fashion-based. There's much more avant-garde design. One of the versions of Athena is like crazy avant-garde. It's not just a woman in a toga with a spear, although she does have the spear and whatnot. My conceptions of the gods and the myths were a mix of traditional, but also, I don't want to say conceptual because there's a lot more conceptual work out there. Like 
higher end. But I think people will find it beautiful. I think some people will question the choices. For example, the gods are multicultural. And that's on purpose because our belief, our, our working theory, was that the Amazons, a multicultural race, would see their gods differently. So the gods in our book are a reflection of the way the Amazons see them or imagine them to be based on what they know about them. So I think people are going to flip out about that, that they're not all like Whitey Whiterson Greek gods. The goddesses and the gods, they run the ethnic gamut. I think it'll be really interesting to see how people and how you, specifically what you think of Apollo. Kelly's take on Apollo was much different than I had ever seen in a comic. He and Artemis are twins. They're young. Mm -hmm. So they are children, essentially, like preteens, maybe, maybe oh. a little bit older. Mm -hmm. So their visuals, they're kids. And I think that will throw some people off. And when they say kids, they're preteen. Mm -hmm. So they're not babies. They're not like Muppet mm -hmm. babies running around, but they're not adults. My first thought is there's something super creepy about Apollo chasing tail as a 12-year-old, a, a woman running and getting turned into a tree to get away. Kelly Sue is actually telling a pretty hardcore feminist tale. It's a modern tale for modern audience. So her conceptions of the gods are through modern eyes, and she makes no beef about it. Her idea of old myths, of modernized. And so I think mythological literalists might have some problems because she's also reimagining several of the goddesses through a feminist lens and certainly the gods although i don't think he's much different in previous marvel or or dc comics i mean this is an asshole but what i like that kelly sue has done is that she's i mean he's very funny and has tons of character but he's clearly not a good person and he epitomizes a certain kind of masculinity that is terrifying and destructive and she goes there with that apollo epitomizes a certain kind of like masculine sociopathic beauty all those wonderful things little blonde boys get away with because they're so cute because they're so prized in our society so she explores some of that in apollo anyway i will let her fill you in on the rest one of the things that has always troubled me in wonder woman for some reason is, and I think that I actually think this has a lot to do with the Perez iteration. It's people who demand a certain sort of fealty to myth. Well, that mm. didn't happen in the Greek myths. I'm like, well, none of this happened. Also, there's no orthodox version of a myth. There's no singular version of a myth. You, you can find iterations of any myths and myths need to ch change and grow and evolve to suit the needs of the people reading them. Mm -hmm. And one thing I've grown tired of in the past couple of decades is arguing often with Wonder Woman fans about their strange need to have the mythology in the book seem accurate to Edith Hamilton in ways they don't demand of any other mythology represent in comic book fiction. That's something I've been very, very curious about. Why? You don't care that much about the Norse gods over in Marvel. You certainly don't care about Aztec or Hindu gods, that's not your thing, but somehow the Greek gods in Wonder Woman if they and, and that mythology, if not represented accurately in their heads, it's wrong. You talked about how you and Kelly Sue are approaching mythology for Historia. These gods, what we're actually seeing are visual representation of ideas of these gods. Mm -hmm. Where did this conversation start with you and Kelly Sue? What did these early conversations look like between the two of you? 
God, I'm trying to remember. Kelly Sue's not a Wonder Woman person. Mm-hmm. So her knowledge is cursory, uh, which I love. So I have this well-known feminist author coming out of this material with the most smidge of an idea of much like 90% of it. And so we were suddenly liberated to think about these characters anyway. We Part of her mission statement was the continued rehabilitation of Hera as a figure, as the goddess of women. That was very important to her. And re-examination of her relationship with Zeus and why she didn't help the other goddesses create the Amazons. So I think the conversation started with what are her conceptions of these goddesses based on her reading of a myth a little bit of Wonder Woman and the feminist lens through which she saw them. And then we set up a Pinterest board and started putting up stuff. And then I brought my own thing where I was like, I don't want to draw a lot of people in togas. There are togas, but not a lot. <laughs> I don't want to do George Fred's all over. George has been done. I've done George. What do I have to say about these characters? This has been my approach to a lot of godlike figures in recent years, as I approach them as elemental forces. Zeus's entire body literally looks like a storm. He's a naked man, but his skin is blue. There's lightning coursing through. It's like literally a living storm. I did some research on Demeter. Her patron animals are snakes and lizards. Like she was a snake goddess. So just thinking about that, I was like, oh my God, that imagery is really incredible. In the creation of the Amazons, they revert to these primal forms, foundational forms. And Hera, because we just think it's funny, never appears in the same costume twice, which is a lot of work, but it was also like her. And that was just fun for me, but it also meant that every costume had to have some meaning or some, nothing was random. Every scene that she's in a new costume, there was a reason. Some were big and flamboyant, very draggy. Others were much more subdued and darker. There's one where she's in her realm of power. That's probably the most toga-y. Also, anyone that sees it, it's going to be like, oh, Alexander McQueen. Oh, like uh, Galliano. Like they're going to see the fashion influences hardcore. I gave Hippolyta a butterfly dress, which is very Alexander McQueen. As a matter of fact, I must have been in my head because when I went back to look at the reference, I'm like, oh, this is actually very similar. So I had to modify it a little bit. But the idea for Hera, of course, is that the butterflies, which are so beautiful, are also food for her peacocks, you know, and all the birds. That turn. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, yes. um, right, like they all flutter about and it's all very pretty. But, like, you know, then she's like pluck and she feeds the, the peacock because she's constantly surrounded by peacocks. Athena has two very avant-garde looks. So there were several things that went into this. Kelly Sue started with uh, a reinterpretation of who these goddesses were. She started a Pinterest board to say, this is what I would like them to look like. It, it was, it matched my intent very closely. We squabbled very little over what things look like. Like we were on target almost 95% of the time. The thing I had to get used to was the notion of Apollo and Artemis as childlike. I had made them a little bit older, but once I saw them as kids, as 12 year olds, it opened up them visually. It was stunning how great that was. She and I had a difference of conception about Ares and in the first volume, Ares, he's, he's not actually a huge character. Zeus is a much more present figure in the first volume than Ares is, much more imposing and potent. And my conception of Ares based on these mythological readings was that he's just like the hot frat guy 
was a racist piece of shit, but you still want to fuck him, right? Like, and it has it's, it's so much to do with our eroticization of war and entertainment. He's just a manifestation of that. Like, he's just hot and terrible. And in my head, it's a little bit of a commentary on the terrible things we, uh, particularly, I would say, gay men are willing to get over when we see someone that's physically beautiful. Wow. So mm-hmm. Aries, again, it's just sort of toxic masculinity personified, but in a more sexualized way. And she was fine with that. The idea of making him gorgeous, you know, he was always presented that way in Greek statues. He was oddly desirable and the consort of Aphrodite, this idea that love and war, you know, sex and war go together, both elements of passion. The other thing I think of is that Aries Zeus and Hera didn't like him. He was the son, you know, why can't you be more like your brother Apollo kind of thing? I pointed out to Kelly Sue, I think it's very interesting that Hera's children, Ares is probably the most impressive, but he's a douchebag. Mm-hmm. And then Hephaestus, poor guy, he lives in the cellar. And then their two daughters were unimpressive in terms of their purview. Who, who were their daughters? It was Hebe, the cup area, and Aletheia, the goddess of childbearing. Although I swapped her out visually for Iris, the goddess of the rainbow, just because I wanted to draw her. So she's, and I think Iris was listed as one of Hera's handmaidens. But what's interesting is to me, just about Hera's children, this is a spoiler. When Hera declines to join the other goddesses to create the Amazons, and she's like, I have my reasons. And Nobody believes Artemis is just like, she's just a Freddy cat or what or whatever. Artemis is pissed off because they need her and Hera's got some other plan. Doesn't understand, but nobody understands. And that's part of Hera's burden. She has a vision that she can't share. I was able to draw a scene where she's being attended by Hebe and Iris. The cupbearer, she's got her head down the whole time. She's clearly disappointed. And Iris is pissed off. So she's taking off Hera's coat and putting on new clothes. And clearly there's anger in her face. And Hera looks at her and it's all silent. Unless Kelly Sue added dialogue I don't know about. It's all silent. And then Hera just walks off. Hera can feel the disappointment of these people, these gods, these women around her, but cannot yet explain her choice making. That was all me. So Kelly Sue just let me put that in. I'm so interested in the relationships with these minor gods as well. We covered the bigger pantheon, but there were others, particularly their children. What about them? And we didn't have a ton of room for it in the first volume, which is why I'm hoping that Kelly Sue and subsequent volumes will let us explore. When you were growing up, What were your favorite stories, nursery rhymes, children's books, movies, comics, cartoons, as far back as you can remember? Strangely, as a child, I sought out my fiction and TV. I was not a big fiction reader. I was a nonfiction reader. Dinosaur books, animal books, books on geology, mythology, I guess, would count as fiction, but I did not read a ton of fiction as a kid. I watched a ton of fiction. So cartoons, adventure shows, but I would watch anything. I was also a museum kid, and I've told this story many, many times because I love it. So I would go to any museum from the time I was five years old. I started La Brea Tarpit, but I would go to art museums and strange oddity museums and miniature museums. It didn't really matter. The Getty, 
and create these fabulous stories about the relics within the and the cases. And Diane Nelson, former president of DC Comics, said that's why you like them because of the stories in the cases. I've been telling stories in my head, reimagining the world I live in since I can remember. But I actually blame TV for my love for superheroes because of cartoons more than comics. Do you remember the earliest cartoons you would have watched? Super Friends. Scooby-Doo, Freddy was my first crush that I remember having. What I remember, and I hope that it's a true memory, is that I just wanted to hug Freddy. I wanted to be his friend because at three or four, that was the only conception I had. That's what my idea of what love was, whatever that puppy love I'd had for him. But all those Hanna-Barbera cartoons uh, and certainly live action things like Land of the Lost, but Super Friends, Scooby-Doo, Josie and the Pussycats. I'm sure if it was on TV on Saturday morning after 7 a.m., I was obsessed with it. Did you watch the Dungeons and Dragons cartoon? Absolutely. And have you in your adult life revisited the Odyssey of the Twelfth Talisman episode of that? No. It's a full-on gay uh, episode. The... It's gay. Oh, check it out. It's gay and a half. And the whole thing is how Eric has finally found a boyfriend. And my crush was on Hank. The Ranger? The Ranger. Yeah. As long as it's not the barbarian. My crush was on uh, Diana the Acrobat. What is something that you believe to be true that you cannot prove or that cannot be proven at all? Interesting question. I am constantly questioning everything I believe all the time as I get older to the point where I don't think it's good because I end up in paralysis because I caveat everything. Part of that's an attempt to be fair, consider things from multiple sides and to consider the limits of my own intellect and experience. And so many things I believe to be true. I'm like, well, maybe I'm wrong about that. Like, I, I constantly undermine my sense of authority to believe certain things. Let me add yeah. another dimension to the question. Making room for all of that, that any belief that you share right now is something that is currently up for debate or is something that you could change. Uh, I'm not asking you to share a belief that you're going to hold unequivocally until the day you die, but just as you see the world today. I, I will need to return to that. That's a, probably one of the hardest questions I've been, ever been asked in an interview. Oh, I win. <laughs> you do. You totally win. In what ways are you the same now as you were when you were a little kid? An interesting thing, despite the last question about questioning myself, is I'm actually horrified at my age, that I think I'm exactly who I was when I was a kid. One thing I've come to believe that I cannot prove, like I think would be on the shadow of a doubt, is I generally think we are who we are by a certain age. And we can learn to sort of work around our faults or lean into our strengths. But I generally, I'm not sure I believe in arcs for people. I think some people can change, perhaps. But I think maybe it's changing behavior as opposed to changing self. Like, I absolutely, the, the older I get, I'm like, oh, my God, I'm exactly who I was when I was 15 in the best and worst ways. And I see that in a lot of people. I think that's, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> but there are certain things that still trigger me that make me really happy. I still react to certain things. I crush in the same ways. It's so startling to me. I forget my age sometimes. I think of myself as a teenager um, and I'm like, oh, I'm not that. This behavior is probably gross to someone. I don't even think about it. 
I just met a, an actor recently and I met him a few times. It was funny because I was just very excited to talk to him. And then I was like, but I felt like I was on and I forget how we were talking earlier about deep dives. Like when I'm on, I'm on mm -hmm. and I'm a lot to take. And I could tell he was like, whoa, pull it back. I was reacting like a te an excited teenager mm -hmm. as opposed to more of an ideally balanced adult. Ideally balanced adult. Oh yes. boy. Ideal. Yeah. I'm not saying realistic, mm -hmm. but an ideal. As I get older, I realize I have fought certain things in my system for so long. And I think I'm learning to not fight them to be like, oh, that's who I am for good or ill. Have you ever encountered a phenomenon that you just cannot explain? And if you have or haven't, how do you think that has affected your worldview? Well, it's interesting you say cannot explain because in my head, I have an explanation. I can think of two or three things I believe are supernatural. One I remember was when my first boyfriend died. And the first night I went home, uh, a light in my bedroom sort of mysteriously, I had an overhead light and just came on and it, it would flicker on and off for the first several days after he died. And I remember saying something effective, I'll be okay. And it went off and it was not, it never went on again. And I, I, I basically told Neil in the universe, I'm going to be fine to an outsider who believes in the supernatural. Like he was checking up on me. And then once mm. I said that it was good. The second thing I had, well, the, the night my mother died, I had a very vivid dream of her soul leaving her body, giving a quick kiss to me and my boyfriend, and then taking off. And I found that strangely comforting because my mother had a really difficult terrestrial life. Her life on earth was hard from beginning to end. And what was really nice about it was a sense of liberation. She was free of this body that had been plagued her whole life by abuse and self-inflicted and certainly brought about by others. And she just had a really tough, and she, you know, she died of cancer. And so I loved the idea that she was free of that. It was such a vivid dream. And I, I don't know if it was my mind comforting me or not, but it brought me great joy. And it's when people would say, oh, she's right there with you. I'm like, no, she's not. I'm glad she's not. She's finally out doing what she should. Like her, she's free of that. She doesn't have to be around me. I'm actually okay with that. But those two experiences are probably the closest things I have to supernatural events or things that would be considered inexplicable, but to me made perfect sense. That's beautiful. Thank you. And my last question, when in your life have you experienced ecstasy? God, it's so funny. I have been thinking about this a lot. I've been talking to a couple of friends of mine, how as we've gotten older, but particularly post-Trump, because of the past five years, we have forgotten how to experience joy and we don't experience it without skepticism. We never just experience joy without question. We approach it or we experience it knowing that it will go away. And it's really sad. I've been reading a lot of things about age, late forties and men tend to be their unhappiest times. I'm textbook when it comes to midlife crisis and all these sorts of things. But a lot of it has to do with, I think, the passing of my mother, the new 52 came and sort of wiped out. And when I say wiped out, like it, it disconnected me from this world and this line of characters that had meant something to me for 30 years. And mm -hmm. it's so fascinating because it wasn't like, how could you? It was just this sudden like, 
oh, I don't have that anymore. And then DC Comics moved from New York to Los Angeles and the company changed. And it was this weird thing where it took me several years to realize, oh, what I loved is gone. It just doesn't exist in the same way that it did. And it's not coming back. And that, and then coupled with the Trump years, et cetera, I just forgot what it's like to feel joy and or ecstasy. I'm being very honest right now, but I have had probably two or three experiences, what's it called, of transcendent sex, mm -hmm. where I'm like, oh, this is ecstasy because I don't even feel like I'm in my body right now. Like it is so transcendent. I feel so connected. That's what this is. I'm really grateful for that because I'm not sure how often that happens for people. And it was with people I cared about, which makes it even better. And then what else? I, I think my mission for the next 20 odd years will be to do my best to re-experience joy, transcendence, ecstasy because I feel like I have been unable to do so for so long because I don't trust it. Thank you, not only for sharing the moments of ecstasy, but also for that response to it, because that's why I included this question, uh, because I was trying to reconnect to it myself and I wanna hear other people's stories. There have been so many fights to fight. We've just been fighting for so long and fights that need to be fought the last possibly the last throes of this iteration of patriarchy, the Trump, just that constant pain and struggle, waking up to the daily damage report for four years and, and then COVID and I couldn't find it anymore. And one of the things I love about you sharing it being transcendent moments in sex is that's deep connection with another human and someone you love. I mean, yeah, you can have transcendent sex with a stranger, like that's possible, but that's not what you described. And what I think is really important, the reason this question exists, something that I believe is important is finding joy on earth, finding joy in life, because that's what makes it good to be here. The fights will always be there. There's always going to be struggle. There's always going to be challenge. There's always going to be one nightmare after another, if that's where your attention is. But finding moments of joy, finding things in life that you love, that's what makes the fight worth doing, not just to wipe out the injustice, but to be able to enjoy life. So I've been going to Provincetown now for 20 some odd years and through COVID, I've been there for extended periods of time, six or seven times. And it was fascinating how happy I am there. And I went multiple times because I wanted to see how much of that happiness was real or how much that joy was momentary. And so I went for a month, I'd go for weeks at a time. I went in winter, I went in fall, I went in the height of summer. I only went once a summer to make sure that what I was experiencing was, I guess, real or not fleeting. But my continued returns there, I felt lighter. I felt joyous. My friends there made me feel joyous. I wanted to celebrate my friends there. And it was real. it's one of my drivers, I think, is to be there is I see it transforming. COVID, it's, it's been transforming for a while, but COVID like accelerated a lot of things. And so there's a huge mass of wealthy people that have moved there and the tenor of the town has changed. You can feel it. But what it still has 
effect, and it would be unfair to say that it doesn't, his like tradition still maintained primarily gay people and artists who just flit about the streets doing their things. 90 active galleries, a really healthy gay, like it feels like you're in a gay town, even though technically you're not. So there's no sense of imminent physical danger. It's easy to forget about being gay there or not forget about it, but not be worried about it, to celebrate it because that's just the nature of the town. But one of my thoughts was, I want to be there and be a part of that tradition, be a part of that spirit because it feels good, but also stem the tide in what little way I can. And what I see is this sort of encroaching sterilization, right, by the kind of gentrification that is happening by other gay people. It's not just old straight people. Having just returned, I'm like, what I love about it is that my friends, including some black friends who, of course, are skeptical of predominantly white spaces, and rightfully so, are like, this is magical. How does this place exist? I don't get it. My best friend was just like, I don't understand how a place like this exists. And he said, I don't either. But what I do know is I want to make sure that it continues to exist. And that seems to be like a mission that would not only give me purpose, but bring me joy. Astrologically, I'm a Cancer with Scorpio moon and Scorpio rising. Almost all of my planets are in Scorpio or Cancer, except for Venus, which is in Virgo. What that means is that I do love through service. So another thing that appeals to me about that is providing a home where friends can go, cooking for people. I find that brings me, if not, if not ecstasy, intense joy. It's a very Cancerian idea, but creating like a home for other people. It's very mothering. I like to believe like I finally became a daddy, but I think I'm more of a mommy. The idea of making sure everyone has what they need, it brings me purpose. And seeing my friends happy brings me joy. In my coaching practice, I use mythic archetypes, that Hestian and Demeter vibe of protection and care and gathering around the hearth and the meal and creating home. That's just what I hear in that. It's really beautiful. It is very funny because Hestia and particularly Demeter in Historia are two of my favorites. And Hestia is quite quiet. She only has one big moment. But Demeter, like, I go all out on, and I I fucking love her. The more I read about her, the more I love her. And Kelly Sue's written some amazing scenes with her and Hera, like fantastic sisterly scenes that I, like, I'm obsessed with. They're great. Really great. That was unexpected, how much I would grow to love those two goddesses. I, I truly believe that what Kelly Sue's done is create something utterly worthy of of Wonder Woman fandom. I really do believe that. There's one big change I think people will freak out about. But when you know why, and when you see the result, that storytelling result of that change, you're like, oh my God, of course, it's so brilliant. But that's the one thing I'll be curious how people, because it took me aback. Mm-hmm. And then when she explained it, I'm like, genius. She treats all of these characters with a great deal of respect. And that's what I like about it so much. How can people see your work and where can they find you? Oh, the standards. I'm Filthy Menace NYC, Instagram and Twitter. My Twitter following is bigger than Instagram. I'm almost never on Facebook anymore, deliberately. I don't have a brain that can manage Facebook algorithms. Phil, thank you so much for sitting down with me, being so generous with your time, for always being so kind to me and always being so enthusiastic in conversation. I really appreciate everything you bring to my life, both as a reader of your work, but also as the human you've been. I consider you a friend, even though we've only met in person a couple of times. Thank you for that. I, I said this, I would 
be no one without people like you. Like you support me and I'm grateful for that. Also, I happen to like you. Why wouldn't I want to talk to you? No, it's actually, it's a lovely gift. And that, my friends, was Phil Jimenez. Thank you again, Phil, for bringing so much to our conversation and to your fans. And thank you to our listeners. What did you think? Please let me know in the show notes comment section over at mythicpodcast.com, where you can also find other episodes and a host of other resources. I'm also on Twitter at MythPod. That's M-Y-T-H-P-O-D. And if you know someone who would dig the show, please share it with them. Producing this podcast is a labor of love. Every time I finish an episode, I am so stoked to share it with you. It also requires a lot of work and a lot of time. If you're enjoying it and you want to support the show, another thing you can do over at the website is buy me a coffee. Virtually speaking, of course. Contribute as much as you want in $5 increments. No subscription, no commitment. Thank you again for listening. And until next time, journey on.